Hello. Welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. If you have listened to our previous episodes, thank you. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. You can catch our podcast on our website, uncdf.org. You can also download it from and subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating. We're also on Spotify as well as our platform on Captivate FM. We are recording this on Christmas Eve. We are inviting our regional technical specialist and much more importantly, a real thought leader and practice leader, specifically at the intersection of cultivating inclusive digital economies and women's economic empowerment, Nandani Hurry Hurry Shura. Thank you for dialing in. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you because this is a really important subject that we want to address today. If you recall a couple of episodes again, it was episode four, we discussed women's economic empowerment, and we discussed it in the context of local economic development and how in the context of creating municipal space and supporting municipal finance, we are able to use that as a driver, not just for women's economic empowerment, but really for women's economic development. We're going to look at women's economic empowerment through a different lens today, and we're going to look at it through the context of the digital economy, and in particular, inclusive digital economies. And it's important to add the word inclusive because the fact of the matter is there's this assumption or this presupposition that anytime you're talking about a digital economy, that it's synonymous with inclusion. And the fact of the matter is that is just simply not always the case, and in particular, in the markets that UNCDF works in, which is the 47 least developed countries. So we're going to talk about the reasons why digital economies are not ipso facto inclusive, specifically in the context of women's economic empowerment. But then we're going to also really spend the rest of the podcast talking about this new digital strategy that UNCDF has launched in 2019 and which will really ramp up in 2020. And by the way, we'll ramp up in a year that is significant for a number of reasons. Number one, in no particular order, we are entering the decade of implementation for the SDGs. This will be the last 10 years that we will have to achieve the sustainable development goals by the 2030 deadline. But just as, if not more importantly, this is the both the 25th anniversary of the Beijing World Conference on Women which was seen as truly a watershed moment uh, for women's rights. And also as we enter into the CSW heading into this year on the status of women, which we'll talk to more with Nandini. So very much uh, her work is already impactful, but it's going to be particularly impactful as we look ahead to this really critical year of 2020 in the context of women's economic empowerment. So I'm going to stop talking and start with just a general question before kind of drill down. So Nandini, again, as I mentioned, is not only a thought leader, she's a practice leader. She is driving much of our work specifically in Africa and in particular in Zambia. And we're going to talk more about that. But I'd love to talk just at a general level, the challenges that prevent digital economies from being inclusive digital economies. Nandini, I'd love for you to just start with those challenges that you see on the ground that, again, prevent digital from really being the driver of inclusivity that we all want it to be? And what do we need to do to ensure that digital economies are truly inclusive? So thank you. Thanks, David, for the question. And 
sort of the lead up uh, agreed that Long 2020 is going to be an exciting year, although we do not have flying cars yet. So not I yet. Do feel, I do feel like that was an expectation of mine. Back to the future. Um, Back to the future. Put that in our heads. And I know. True. Yeah. Um, it's actually a good segue to saying, you know, the question that you've asked, which is, we all have this idea that the mobile phone, right, when we say digital, we mean lots of things, but really the, the device we're talking about that's kind of revolutionized access to any kind of service is the mobile phone, right? Yeah. And so what prevents the mobile phone from really driving financial inclusion? And while we know the mobile phone has actually changed the lives of millions of people around the world, mm-hmm. especially women in helping bring them into the formal financial system, there are still lots of barriers. We could go on and on just talking about this one question for sure. And I think just because mobile phones exist doesn't mean all problems have been solved in the entire world. You have a lot of people, especially people that are normally marginalized, normally left behind, as we would say in UN lingo, Mm -hmm. women, youth, people living in rural areas that don't own phones. Mm -hmm. When they do own a phone, they don't have access to connectivity Mm -hmm. and or they don't have access to energy. So we just take Zambia, for example, 75% of Zambians don't have access to power at all. Wow. No, even if all those problems aren't solved, then you have this challenge of meaningful awareness, right? The products of digital financial services are not meaningful to the people that actually need them. They may have heard the jingle but they don't actually know what it means for them. What a fantastic articulation. I feel like we here hear the jingle because we think of mobile, 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 but you've laid out several challenges that prevent mobile from being the game changer that it can be. So I'd love for you to drill down now into the context of women, because again, I think there was this expectation that mobile could level the playing field for women in terms of economic empowerment. So What are the challenges in that landscape specifically for women that you see? Of course, it's always hard to say, like, well, all women face X. Of course, of course, yeah. That's 50% of the world, plus or minus. Yeah. But, you know, generally, depending on the culture, if you're in a lower income area, geography, or household, if there is a mobile phone in the household, most likely the first one goes to the husband right? Hmm. And then the second one most likely goes to the son. Wow. Right. Interesting. Okay. And so, and even if there's one available to a woman, often she has challenges using it. She may not trust it. She may not figure out this whole pin thing. How do you do a pin? What's my pin? Uh, We see a lot of instances where, you know, women do own phones, but then they ask their children, to actually input the pin for them because they're not comfortable doing it. So there's one part ownership and there's one part of this whole like literacy piece, digital literacy, literacy. financial or even regular literacy that are particular challenges for people that normally don't have access to those things. Wow. Just to lay out that point that a phone goes first to the father and second to the son. I mean, it's easy to forget that mobile still runs into patriarchy. It's a fascinating point. Thank you for that. So I think that's a great starting point that enables us to get into the conversation about this digital strategy that UNCDF launched in 2019. And again, launched in 2019, specifically in Uganda, but really 2020 looking to be that ramp up year. 
and it's called Leaving No One Behind in the Digital Era. And I'd love to hear you unpack it because it takes a very distinct view on the role of financial inclusion as a means versus an end. But as someone that is literally implementing that strategy on the ground, I'd love to hear you unpack the strategy. Thank you. You know, it is super exciting. And it's called Leaving No One Behind in the Digital Era, Mm -hmm. Building Inclusive Digital Economies. And it is a culmination of a lot of things, right? So, you know, when you are doing work for a very long time, like UNCDF has been doing in the financial inclusion space, trying to get more people having access to financial services, you begin to do a listening tour after you finish five years of a strategy, right? Mm -hmm. We were around that point a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. So we did a listening tour with our global and local stakeholders in the 20-plus least developed countries, LDCs, that we work in. Mm -hmm. And we were hearing that the results of our collective work, requests for future support, were all headed kind of in the same direction. Leveraging digital to improve the quality of lives Hmm. of citizens in the countries that we worked in. Mm -hmm. So while, you know, advancing digital financial inclusion was important to people, like you just said, it was like kind of a means to an end, right? They wanted the ability to use financial services to access energy access. I just talked about how only 75% of Zambians don't have access to any power, right? Have increased access to healthcare, which is such a huge issue, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. and really most developing countries. Have access to better transport, have access to better agricultural input, better access to information. I mean, information is power in many ways. So really, they were looking for a better quality of life. And so when we were listening closely and we were saying, okay, well, what does that mean for the next five years? How can we help? the countries that we work in get there, Mm -hmm. that's more than just financial inclusion, David. I think that's building digital economies. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 So leveraging our previous work and results in clean energy, youth, microfinance, and of course, digital, we are not just building digital economies, but building inclusive digital economies. Right. Right. Those that leave no one behind, those don't forget As you're growing a market, as you're increasing digital products and services, that those products and services still aim to serve and address the needs and challenges, hopefully in a sustainable business model for women, for youth, for people living in the rural areas that are often left behind. So that's why it's called Leaving No One Behind in the Digital Era, Building Inclusive Digital Economies. That's really fascinating, and I want to get specifically into specific point about women's economic empowerment because, in fact, you're cultivating that strategy on digital. But before we do that, I know that the strategy basically embraces an ecosystem approach. And to the point that you had made at the start, if all you're focusing on is putting a mobile phone in people's hands, while that is important, for the reasons that you laid out, just putting a mobile phone in people's hands is not going to get you to the point where digital economies are truly inclusive. So if you don't mind just unpacking this ecosystem approach behind the digital strategy. Great question. (laughs) Well, we have learned, again, like after doing this for a long time, right, since the 60s, we've been trying to work with 
our least developed countries and sure. advancing their economies at large is that you can't do this piecemeal, right? Like you just, I really like the way you just said, you can't just put a phone in someone's hands, right? You can't just work with the private sector and help them try to develop products that, that will work for base of the pyramid or poor actors. You can't just work with government and help them try to overcome their barriers to increasing you know, financial inclusion in the digital economies. You must actually work with the entire ecosystem. Right? Mm -hmm. You have to work with the public sector, the private sector, civil society, development partners. This is like the fun part of the job, I think, actually, mm -hmm. is you have to really understand each individual and each organization's KPIs and their incentives. Sure. How do you align those KPIs incentives and get them all moving in the same direction, which for the last five years in Zambia has been building digital financial inclusion and for the next five years is building an inclusive digital economy. And it's really exciting and it's actually really fun because if you really do a good job listening to what the ecosystem stakeholders need and want, and you begin to sort of develop those trusting relationships with them where they trust your advice and guidance and technical assistance and support, the aligning of incentives is not that hard. Interesting. But okay. Actually, I think that's one of the secret sauces, success stories of our UNCDF practices around the world in the countries that we work in is that we have that deep on the ground team that like lives there for the long term, develops those relationships you know, has those coffees and lunches and has those conversations to understand sort of what's behind people's behavior and motivations, to understand how to help everyone succeed in their KPIs and also help the system move towards more inclusive financial services and now digital economies. That's fascinating. And it's funny that you made this point that it's the alignment of the KPIs is not as challenging as one might think. I think that's fascinating. But to that point, I mean, to be able to convene all these different stakeholders, it's definitely its own kind of singular skill. And so kudos to you for doing it on the ground. And actually, in terms of your work on the ground, this is where I'd really like to drill down, starting off with just the strategy as it relates to women's economic empowerment. As we acknowledged at the top, next year, it's a really important year. Again, it's the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Conference on Women. Again, as noted at the top, really a watershed moment as it relates to women's rights. And I think what a lot of people would agree with is that particularly in the digital economy of today, women's economic empowerment is synonymous uh, with gender equality. And so as a leader in UNCDF in terms of women's economic empowerment and particularly on digital, share with us the strategy, share with us how you are looking to leverage digital to elevate women's economic empowerment. So first, David, how would you define women's economic empowerment? I know Samina in episode four from our IELD practice shared her definition, which was excellent. What definition would you give for women's economic empowerment? Thank, thank you so much for uh, putting me on the spot. I truly appreciate it. <laughs> so, And thank you for being a loyal listener to episode four. If I recall episode four correctly, uh, Samina, and this is Samina Anwar, she made this excellent distinction between women's economic development and women's economic empowerment. And the point she was making is that when we think about women's economic development, that's actually rooted 
in what we would kind of call hard statistics in terms of wages, access to capital, employment, what have you. But women's economic empowerment, she acknowledged was, I mean, she used the term softer, but only in the sense that what she meant by that was how the economic elevation of women translated in terms of a woman's place in a given community. And so that we're not just measuring empowerment by how much money they have in their pocket and what have you, or access to opportunity, but how that translates into their position in the context of their household, in the context of their community, and in the context of their locality. I don't know if I'm right. I'm not the thought leader, but <laughs> I, I don't know if that helps you. No, it does. And so my point was going to be, Samina's right. All the things she said were correct, and she's obviously an expert in the field. But I think if you're really listening to the research and you're trying to encapsulate it, I mean, women's economic empowerment means so many things to so many people and everyone's right. There's no wrong answer sure. here. So sure, sure. I, didn't, I didn't give you a trick question. Don't worry. But when you encapsulate it, and that's one of the things I've been trying to do for our practice, is I think it's really about, and you said it, you, you alluded to it in your answer, which is women need to be able to earn and control their money. So... And I think, you know, this is really coming a lot out of the, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have uh, been putting out a lot of great research and a lot of great thinking around this. And, and I just attended a, one of their workshops in mm -hmm. Singapore in October. Yeah. And in it, there's this quote from some of the research they've done with women across six countries in the world. And I'm just going to read it to you. Please. Right? And I think this quote's really, really powerful. Okay. I'm going to come back to your question about how it applies to the strategy. No problem. But first, let's make sure the audience knows, A, what we mean by women's economic empowerment, because that's important. Sure. And B, what's the vibe? What's the feeling that most women in the countries that we work in feel? Awesome. Right? And here's the quote. It's from Women and Money out of the IDEO.org and Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. Money is the domain of men. Society doesn't view it as her role to earn money or her right to make financial decisions. Wow. That's really powerful. I think it's important. First, what are we trying to get better at? What are we trying to improve? What's the goal? I think that's really important. And then secondly, what's the current status in a lot of the countries that we work in? Every country is different. Every cultural and social norm is different, but this is a reality for a lot of the women that we work with, yeah. right? In a lot of the countries that we work. And so I think that's really, really important. UN Women has this great document It's called UN Women Facts and Figures. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to read all the things from the document, but one thing that really struck me is they said, globally, over 2.7 billion women are legally restricted from having the same choice of jobs as men. 2.7 billion women. Billion with a B. Billion with a B. Wow. 59 economies have no laws on sexual harassment in the workplace. And then in 18 economies, husbands can legally prevent their wives from working. Wow. Where are we, right? Like, obviously, not every country we work in has these challenges, but many do. Sure, yeah? sure. Then you asked me sort of like, how does this fit into the strategy? How are we going to actually improve women's economic empowerment, helping women earn and control their money more 
through our strategy, mm -hmm. right? That's the question you have, yeah. David. Yes. So we have four work streams, right? We have to have a structure in which our strategy is composed because we're actually taking this strategy framework and applying it to the 20 plus countries that we work in in Asia and Africa, right? So we want to be applying the same structure so we can help our teams on the ground take their know-how, take their relationships, and actually help implement change. So the first work stream is called empowered customers. So you have to start with the customer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And what that means is generally, how do you help all people, especially those that are normally not included, those that are usually left behind, A, have the digital literacy, regular literacy, numeracy that they need in order to use the products and services, mm -hmm. right? We talked about that a few minutes ago. Yeah. And then B, actually be empowered through the products, right? And, and actually feel like the quality of their lives are improving. Sure. So for women specifically, they've got to be able to have this meaningful awareness. I talked about that earlier. Yeah. And... That's got to be actually tied to specific products because it's hard to like learn about a product and then not use it, right? So for women, it's really about digital literacy, regular literacy, numeracy, and then meaningful awareness piece tied to a specific product. Sure. The second work stream is called open digital financial services ecosystems, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have an open ecosystem and it's more affordable to all peoples, it makes things more accessible. Sure. Right? So like in India, the cost of phones, the cost of data, the cost of talk time is, is very low compared to the rest of the world, right? right? Almost every stakeholder you speak to in the ecosystem says that's a significant driver of the digital economy. Here. Lowering the cost of entry into that ecosystem. Okay. That's right. Thank you. That's right. And what you might remember, David, is during the dot-com boom in the United States, while we had a lot of challenges with that later, one of the things that it did is it lowered the cost of the ability of a business to start a website, right. to have a website right. that was a pretty good website. Absolutely. And just lowering the cost of that and lowering the cost of servers and data right. has actually really helped businesses thrive in the United States. Right. So similarly, we want businesses and individuals to be able to access what we call sort of digital rails, right? Digital access rails. to internet, access yeah. to data, access to power, right? right? At an affordable cost. Right. Right. And so even more so, and I, I mentioned this at the top of the podcast, women have to be able to access phones, they have to be able to access internet and energy at affordable costs. And lastly, you know, there's this whole thing about last mile network. Mm -hmm. I think you've talked about it a couple times in some of your podcasts especially with Esther, the first one. The power of digital often is at these booths, these agents that you might see in different countries around the world that usually service mobile network operators, telcos, but also service other companies increasingly as well. And so if women are at the heart of those last mile networks, they become those agents. Often other women are more comfortable to sign up as customers with those agents. So sure, sure. you have this double win you have more women agents for small businesses and earning money, and you have more women customers having access to not just financial services, but services that improve their lives. The third work stream is called inclusive innovation. The name says what it does, right? Products should actually be crafted in such a way to address 
the challenges of those who are normally left behind, and women especially, right? And so solving for problems of women and solving problems for women, medium to small enterprise as well. In most of the countries that we work in, you cannot take a loan without collateral. It's really hard to take a loan without collateral. Right. And most women in the countries that we live in, especially given the quote that I read to you a few minutes ago, absolutely have access to no collateral. Right. So their ability to take a grow their business, help with the hard times in their family is pretty bad. Right. right. So if we can, and we have done this, help create products that aren't collateral-based, that can allow for more lending to women and other excluded groups, right. it can really make a difference. Right. The last one, but not the least, <laughs> is policy and regulation. Sure. You can't do any of these things without being in hand-in-hand in hand with the public sector. Sure. Really want to work with the public sector on sort of collecting and making policy decisions based on sex-disaggregated data right. to really improve women's economic empowerment and whatever other enabling environment pieces we can do with them to protect citizens of their country, as well as allowing for innovation across the world stream. So I want to hear specifically about the work that you've already started in Zambia, but just very quickly, can you explain the importance of having sex disaggregated data? Because it's often referenced in this context, but I would just love for you to explain quickly about why it is so critical to have that information. Yeah, let's do a sex disaggregated data 101 in like two minutes or something. All right. Timing you. So, <laughs> you're timing. I bet yeah. you are. So, sex disaggregated data is really important in increasing women's financial inclusion or increasing access to financial services for women, or even women's economic empowerment in the way that we define it women earn and control their money if you don't actually have a measurement of it, right? So, mm-hmm. You must be able to say, of your customers, how many are women and how many are men? And then of each of the products that they use, how many women and how many are men, right? And so only when you actually have that baseline are you able to say, okay, these are our targets. This is how we want to improve. If you simply begin to do interventions, let's say, with the private sector or the public sector to try to increase women's financial inclusion, how do you know what you're trying to increase it to, right? And that sounds really obvious, right? But what's even more powerful, and we've discovered this in Zambia, is when you begin to build incentives for the private sector to have sex disaggregated data, collect it, and actually use it, Mm -hmm. you begin to see forces within their own organizations begin to actually move their both human and financial resources towards realizing, wow, this is actually an opportunity for us, right. a financially sustainable opportunity to gain more customers. Right. Right. So there's multiple levels to this, and I probably didn't do it in two minutes, but sex disaggregated data has to be the cornerstone, has to be the first step, both on the public sector side and the private sector side, to increasing women's economic empowerment in the countries that we work in. Sure. And that brings us to, again, the work that you've already started in Zambia. So tell us about the program that you've launched and you're elevating. So UNCDF Zambia launched in 2015. So we started working in partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. So they they funded three countries, actually, Mm -hmm. Zambia, Senegal, and Benin. We have provided grants and, but more often than not, technical assistance in about 20-plus projects for the public and private sector. Mm-hmm. So we've worked with a lot of people. We've had the privilege and honor of working with the central bank, telcos or mobile network operators, MNOs, 
banks, microfinance institutions, and of course, a lot of emerging fintechs, as well as innovation hubs. So what's exciting, and this is actually something that MasterCard Foundation shared with us when they were discussing sort of the inception or like, you know, comic books have this origin story piece, right? Well, what was the origin story of choosing these three countries, Senegal, Benin, and Zambia? And literally, we had super low rates of usage of digital financial services. Mm -hmm. In Zambia, it was 4%. In Benin, it was something like 2%. And in Senegal, it was something like 13% of adults using digital financial services actively. And they weren't on the map. Everybody was looking at East Africa. Everybody was looking at Kenya and Tanzania as models for success. And so what we did in partnership with the MasterCard Foundation was invest in in-country teams for a long period of time to try to take this ecosystem approach to actually advance digital financial inclusion. And, and maybe surprise, surprise, maybe not surprise, surprise, we actually have, right? So Zambia is now at 44% of adults using digital financial services. And um, Can I interrupt you really quick? 44% yeah. starting from what? Four. Four percent. Yeah, four in 2015. Four yeah. in 2015 to 44% presently. As of December 2018, so that, not presently. It's probably no, even no. more now. It's remarkable. I'm sorry. Keep going. Thank you. So the program has been really fun, Clearly. honestly. It's been an amazing group of people that we get to work with in Zambia. And as part of the new five-year strategy, one of the things that we decided to do was called Sprint for Women. Mm-hmm. And what it was, it was a design sprint focused on helping private sector increase the number of women customers. And to be honest, David, when we first designed this thing and we put out this expression of interest to see how many private sector would be interested, I thought I could count on one hand how many would apply. I thought it'd be three institutions, right? Because I knew all the private sector pretty well. Sure. And can you guess how many applied? I could not. Tell me. 16. Wow. 16. 16 showed expressions of interest. Wow. About half were new products, half were existing products in the market. And they all said, we have a commitment. We want to increase the number of women customers we have. Yes, that's women's financial inclusion, but let's be practical about it. They wanted to increase the number of women customers. Sure. Right? Sure. So we said, okay, based on this, let's design a sprint. Let's design a competition to help providers really compete to get a prize. The prize was a grant worth $85,000 plus technical assistance worth about Mm $50,000 that will help them reach an additional 30,000 women customers Mm -hmm. or 30,000 customers, mostly women. Mm -hmm. And so we put out this call for proposals, an RFA request for applications, and we received a lot of proposals, right? Again, from this wide group of people, telcos, microfinance institutions, banks, and fintechs, right? And from that, we had a short list of three. One was fintech called Phoenix that's focused on pay-as-you-go energy, Mm -hmm. where you pay small amounts of money using digital financial services to get small amounts of energy. Okay. Starting to address that problem that we were talking about earlier, David, 75% of Zambians not having access to energy. Right. The second thing is a really interesting company, Zambian-born, called Hobbiton that actually provides an investment product to poor Zambians hmm. uh, at a very affordable rate that allows them to have access to an investment product through digital financial services. And the last is a company called Jumo, 
This is an international company that helps mobile network operators offer loans to people that own mobile money accounts collateral free, right? Small amounts, but still quite useful. Sure. uh, Based on transaction history. So this goes back to a little bit of thing we were talking about. Trying to de-collateralize lending is super important for UNCDF's next five years. Sure. So these three institutions got shortlisted, and then they competed. And we did a competition in an interesting way. We didn't just say, okay, whoever writes the best proposal wins, right? What we actually did is we said, the three of you will receive some technical assistance from a design consultant. You will then test your product and prototype in the field, in non-urban locations. Mm -hmm. And then you'll come back and pitch to a set of judges on what you've learned, how you're going to improve your product and why it's well-suited for Zambian women and how you're going to scale. How are you going to hit this target of 30,000 people? Mm -hmm. So it was actually pretty exciting. And I think what's been interesting is not just all three, but actually all 16 institutions that even from the early days of the expressions of interest have been asking, will you give us TA? Even if we haven't won, even if we haven't made it to the finals, can you support us through technical assistance? So right. the demand for technical assistance to increase women customers has been stunning. Stunning. And again, because they're clearly seeing the potential to cultivate a customer base, whereas other companies might not necessarily be seeing a customer base. It's clear that these are companies that clearly see the customer potential that exists by tapping and elevating women in Zambia. And obviously the goal is to demonstrate and scale this beyond Zambia as well. I mean, I think we've already received requests for a similar program happening in Myanmar that's huh. structured slightly differently, but also excellent and tailored to the country's needs, of course. I think it's something UNCF's really interested in trying to do in many other countries. That is fantastic. We could talk about this for hours, but unfortunately, we have to wind this down. So we're down to the last two questions. And so, as always, the second to last question, the penultimate question that we ask our guests is the journey that brought you to UNCDF. And I want to preface by saying that you are the, the first guest of this podcast who's actually in the field. Everyone else works in the HQ, and that's great. But I think yours is definitely a distinct answer, given that you're talking to us from the field. So what's the journey that brought you to UNCDF? You know, in one word, it's family, actually, mm-hmm. Okay. if you'll believe it. I believe uh, it. <laughs> I'm, I'm the daughter of immigrants to the United States. Mm-hmm. So I've always sort of thought, oh, well, you know, I have this sort of dual identity, dual heritage. You know, I'd love to do something international one day is kind of generically how I thought about it. And then sort of as life progressed, it became more and more and more specific. But I think I was working for the U.S. Agency for International Development. Okay. USAID. Thank um, you. USAID. That's right. And I had helped uh, start the digital program there Mm -hmm. and also helped start a partnership called the Better Than Cash Alliance, which UNCDF hosts now Mm -hmm. and has hosted since 2012. Mm -hmm. And I had done this thing called like a life plan. And I just basically said, okay. I did it back in like 2013 or 2014. And I said, okay, in 2020, which I thought was really far away, right? What do I want to be? What do I want to do? Sure. And then based on that, how do I get there? What are the different jobs and skills and experiences I need 
in order to get to that job in 2020. And I had put as my next job that I would love to lead a small team in Africa or Asia doing something in digital, right? And trying to improve people's lives. And, and then this job description came my way. That was the technical specialist for Zambia and Malawi mm-hmm. for UNCDF. And I asked my husband, hey, should we apply? Because it really was a family decision. We're living in D.C. and moving to Africa would be a big change for a us. A change, sure. A big change, big change, for sure. And luckily, my husband was super supportive and said, absolutely, you should apply. And we applied. And then I totally got the role, which I was really stunned about. And then I asked him, are you okay to do this? And after a lot of discussion, he said, yes. So I think, you know, we came to Zambia four years ago, and it's really been the best job of my entire life. So no regrets at all. And I think at UNCDF, what I've been able to do is really take all of the learnings from all the experiences of my life. So again, you know, when I talked about the strategy being sort of the collective conclusion to many decades of work of UNCDF, I feel kind of the same about my work in UNCDF Zambia. I was able to take all of the skills from all my various experiences and really sort of help this amazing digital finance ecosystem in Zambia and now digital economy ecosystem grow. And in addition, I was able to grow amazing local team, which I call the dream team. And I had a really great global team. And what I had always wanted in every job that I wanted, every job that I had, was to really take the lessons from sort of a global practice and really share them and make sure that they were being executed at a local level, sharing my local learnings and sharing them at a global level. And I have this amazing network of peers, you know, who you may have on someday, you know, Sabine Mensa, who's our regional technical specialist, oh, or yeah. regional hub manager for West Africa, just Preet Singh, Francois Coupien, the father of the digital economy strategy, you know, and so many others. They all have been not just peers that I've been able to say, hey, I'm having a tough time with this. How do you handle it? But also friends. So it's been a really, really great journey. So I feel really happy and lucky to have been able to land here. And thank you for mentioning Jesperit, Francois, Sabine, and obviously we could go down the line, but I think it really speaks to, and again, from my vantage point, I mean, the reality is, is that I think this is an organization that is really able to attract unbelievable talent, people that have accomplished in the private sector, in the public sector, in both. And also gives them really the freedom to cultivate and to deploy and execute programs and strategies and to do it on the ground. And we are a fund, but I dare say that we innovate and we incubate and we do really some tremendous work on the ground, or I should say you and the people that you mentioned do tremendous work on the ground. And so with that, let's get to the final question, because this has really been a fantastic exchange. I'm so grateful that we were able to do this. So thank you for that. I want the last question to actually cue off something you said. One of the things you mentioned in the last time we were recording this was you were talking about how the work you were seeing in Zambia represented the tip of the iceberg. What is the iceberg? What will women's economic empowerment as a result and as a function of a well-designed, inclusive digital strategy, what does women's economic empowerment look like when that strategy is deployed on the ground? Well, you know, I think I just talked about the global strategy. I talked about the four work streams. Yeah. And what's exciting is actually in Uganda, 
we launched this strategy in Uganda, and it's been in partnership with Swedish CETA. They're implementing this strategy in a 15 million five-year program, right? In Zambia, we're not fully funded yet. We launched a localized version of our strategy in November. Mm -hmm. And the keynote, we asked to be the World Bank, because the World Bank is doing these really interesting digital economy diagnoses mm -hmm. in uh, all around Africa and in various countries. And what was similar between the keynote that they've done to talk about the diagnosis they're doing in Zambia and our localized digital economy strategy is we have very audacious goals, David. You know? Yeah. Like, honestly, if you were just to walk in the door to our launch, I'm sure you would kind of look at that our strategy and be like, you guys are crazy, mm -hmm. right? Why do you think you can accomplish some of those things? Why do you think you can close the mobile phone ownership gap? Why do you think you can close the energy gap? Why do you think you can close the access point gap to all people, including women, right? You know, why do you think you could make non-collateralized lending the norm in Zambia? Like, why do you think those are things you could do, right? And those are good questions, but I feel that not just us, but also actually the World Bank in their diagnosis in partnership with government have very audacious goals, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if any ecosystem can actually accomplish it, it's the Zambian one. The reason for that yeah. is because, first of all, if you look at what this ecosystem has been able to accomplish in the last five years across the board, not just that number from you know 4% of adults to 44% of adults, but many other numbers as well. You know, the number of agents has risen from 13,000 to 47,000. You know, like the number of products for different stakeholders have risen. So you have this amazing ecosystem of public sector champions and private sector innovators. And not only are they really smart, hmm really agile people, they're actually really strong, friendly colleagues, mm -hmm. right? But obviously, you know, when they compete, they compete. But they actually all, they have lunch, they talk to each other, they like learn from each other, they're collegial. It's a small community of people that actually respect each other for the most part. And so I think when you have a group of really smart people who respect each other and engage each other appropriately, and you have market facilitators like UNCDF and others on the ground, who knows what can happen? So I think it was welcomed, actually. I was expecting the audience to kind of say, these goals are a little much nimbity. After the launch, I was expecting the audience to say that. But right. time after time, our colleagues are the most honest and the most critical said, no, this is the direction we need to go. You need to be setting goals this high for us. And we need to be pushing things forward. So the tip of the iceberg are some of the things that I've talked about. The iceberg goes deep, and it's going to be a hard climb. But I feel like if any ecosystem can do it, it's the Zambian ecosystem um, and some of the other ecosystems that we work in across UNCDF because we have worked with these stakeholders, and we know how smart, agile, and interested they are in advancing inclusive digital economies. That is a, both a powerful and an optimistic way, not only to end this conversation, but really to start the 2020 year. And I'm so grateful that we had it. Nandani Hurihuri Shura, thank you so much for dialing in and for giving us your thoughts. And again, you're a tremendous thought leader and practice leader, and we thank you for your work, and we look forward to seeing more of it in the future. 
Thank you, David. Thank you. Capital Musings is a product of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. The producers are Carlos Messias, Victoria Garidi, and Fernando Zaruz. Thank you very much for tuning in. And thanks for those who have uh, listened to us throughout 2019. Thank you so very much. We look forward to providing you more insights and more ideas as it relates to economic development, impact investment, and sustainable development goals in 2020. Happy holidays and have a great new year. Take care.